Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand gathered with women and fellow Democratic officials outside the Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood office in Albany to speak out shortly after the Supreme Court's decision, shortly after the Supreme Court's ruling overturning the Roe v. Wade abortion rights decision. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard was there and filed this report. Senator Gillibrand spoke to a small but emotional crowd hours after the Supreme Court struck down the Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey decisions in a 6-3 ruling, the landmark decisions that affirmed and upheld the right to an abortion as part of the right to privacy are now a thing of the past. The Democrat assailed the conservative-leaning court's ruling, predicting it could only be the beginning. We're talking about the right for LGBTQ equality, yes. the right for gay marriage, yes. the right to decide what kind of contraception your body needs, the right to make any yes. personal medical decision. This reasoning is so far-reaching and so out of step with the norm that it's unconscionable. In a midterm election year where Democrats are considered unlikely to keep their narrow control of Congress, Gillibrand said the decision in the Dobbs v. Jackson case would dominate the polls this November. I hope in many people's mind it is the issue on the ballot because if women do not have equality in this country, if women are not full citizens, if women don't have the rights, the human rights and human dignity to decide what's going to happen to their bodies and their futures, we have lost our rights to citizenship. Gillibrand said she would support abolishing the filibuster to codify abortion rights into federal law. The senator was flanked by fellow Democratic politicians, including local mayors and state and local lawmakers. State Senator Michelle Hinchy traveled to Albany from Woodstock. I cried in the car on the way here. And yet I know that I'm one of the privileged people. The first term Democrat encouraged voters to rally behind pro-choice candidates. Up and down the ballot. These are our school boards, our town boards, our state legislatures, our county legislatures and our federal government. Because not only is that the bench of people that we will have running for more seats, but that sends a signal again to every community across our state and across our country that this will not and this cannot stand. State Assemblywoman Carrie Warner, a Democrat seeking re-election in the 113th District, said she was saddened beyond belief about how the Supreme Court decision will affect future generations. She said it's up to voters to raise their voices to elect pro-choice candidates. And that's not going to happen just because we write letters. It's not going to happen just because we wave signs. It's going to happen because we elect people who want to protect our rights as women. It's going to happen because we're going to elect people who say women are 51% of the population. We are 56% of the voting population. And we want to be equal participants in this state and in this country's and in the globe's economy.
Michelle Osterlich, a Schenectady County legislator running for state Senate, urged the public to become informed about all their local officials. When you go to the polls in November, remember what these leaders have said today and remember that every election matters. For their part, Republican leaders in New York cheered the decision. The number three House Republican Elise Stefanik of the 21st District and gubernatorial hopeful Congressman Lee Zeldin of Long Island were among GOP officials welcoming the ruling. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. New York Governor Kathy Hochul won this week's Democratic primary, her first contest in seeking a full term as governor. She'll face Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin in the November election. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Hochul, dressed in white at a venue in Tribeca that featured a literal glass ceiling, says she stands on the shoulders of generations of women. Who constantly had a bang up against that glass ceiling. To the women of New York, this one's for you. Hochul beat back challenges from New York City public advocate Jumani Williams, a progressive and moderate Democrat, and Long Island Congressman Tom Swasey. Neither candidate had much money compared to Hochul's multi-million dollar campaign fund or name recognition, and they failed to win significant support from voters. If Hochul wins in November, she'd be the first woman chosen by voters to ever hold the state's highest elected office. She replaced former Governor Andrew Cuomo when he resigned last August in a sexual harassment scandal. In the closing days of the campaign, she focused on defending abortion rights and approving gun safety measures, two issues of concern for Democratic voters. And she vowed to continue the fight, saying she won't let right-wing extremists win. And making the world know that New York State is a safe harbor for America's women. You come here. Lieutenant Governor and former Congressman Antonio Delgado and Hochul's running mate also won over progressive candidate Ana Maria Archila and moderate Diana Reyna. Delgado's been in his post for just over a month. He replaced Hochul's first choice, former Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin, who was indicted on federal corruption charges and resigned. Delgado called for unity in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court rulings overturning Roe v. Wade and New York's restrictions on carrying concealed weapons, saying dark forces are exploiting hate and division. New York has always been ahead of the national curve, setting the pace, and now more than ever. We need New York to not only set the pace, but to hold the line. Republican Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin won a close race in a four-way GOP primary, beating out Rob Astorino, Harry Wilson, and Andrew Giuliani, son of Rudy Giuliani, the former New York City mayor and advisor to former President Donald Trump. Zeldin says New York is at a breaking point and high costs and taxes have led to rising out-migration. He blamed Hochul for high crime rates, saying she sold out to the liberal wing of her party on issues like bail reform laws that ended many forms of cash bail. And he promised to end all COVID-19 pandemic-related mandates. In the state of New York, one-party rule will end. Kathy Hochul will get fired. We will restore balance and common sense to Albany again. There are twice as many registered Democrats as Republicans in blue New York, and Hochul is favored to win the general election in November. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartalk. Alan, so Governor Kathy Hochul wins her primary this week. She seems to be in a strong position and has certainly been accomplishing things quickly based on what's happening on the national scene. Well, Kathy Hochul has certainly demonstrated that she is more than capable, frankly, to rule. I mean, you know, she is a she, and that's great because there are many of us who think that since women have never been given their proper role in our politics, that when you get somebody like Kathy Hochul, who shows how good she is, it really does expose the lie of why we have such male dominance in politics. And we certainly have to reconsider after we see what Kathy Hochul has done. And what about Lee Zeldin, the representative from Long Island who voted for the big lie that Biden did not win the election, and here he is, the nominee in blue state New York on the Republican side? Well, they did a bad job of picking. I mean, if they want to win in New York State, and they have won in New York State, George Pataki and others, if they want to win, then they've got to draw the independents and some Democrats into the fold. This is not the way to do it. And if they nominate people who like Zeldin, they're basically saying, we give up before we begin. Meanwhile, the turnout, about 15% of Democrats voted for New York governor, which means turnout was pretty good. Voter turnout, quote, is always abysmal, says this political article. Alan, and you talked about the idea that if every, for example, every Democrat voted in New York State, you probably wouldn't have Republican candidates winning many offices. Well, yeah, but what happens is that people get disgusted with the existing candidates sometimes, so that if there are many more Democrats than Republicans in New York, the Democrats tend to win. And if you elect people who stink or who offer ethical issues, for example, Andrew Cuomo, you say, okay, then we have to give somebody else a chance. That's how George Pataki became the governor of New York for three terms. That's a lot of years. That's 12 years. And if, in fact, the Democrats abuse their positioning, then people reach out and find somebody else. Allen would open primaries, bring more people to the polls? Yeah, I think so. You know, we basically have that in Massachusetts. You can choose to be a, you can register and you can be basically non-aligned and you don't have a party, but then you get to enter a a primary uh, and vote in either the Republican or Democrats, and then you have to go back to being basically without a party. It makes sense to me. I mean, the idea that you give the political parties a stranglehold in some states like Massachusetts, maybe New York, extraordinary powers makes no sense. The idea to me is to give everybody a real choice. Well, speaking of choice, you spoke to Georgiana Hansen. She was the interim president and chief executive officer of Planned Parenthood Empire State Acts. That organization, a nonprofit, represents the five Planned Parenthood affiliates in New York. The issue is access, access to these health care services, including abortion. And despite the fact that, in large part, you're protected in New York and still have that access, people who are poor, minorities often, because of financial situation and because there isn't, for example, an access fund that would help those folks, don't have equal access. Well, we've known that for a long time. Of course, David, you and I have talked about it so many times, the idea that 
if you have money, you really are in a much better position to affect decision-making. We know that. And in a country which considers itself to be a democracy from the people, it is alarming that we claim democracy, but we don't produce it based on how much money you have. Yeah, and the other thing that you talked about with her was the idea that even in New York, there are tools, and the most important tool she brought out of the toolbox was voting. That just as we talked about a moment ago, you got to have turnout if you want to get the policies through the legislature or the Congress that you want. And clearly, when you look at the Congress, especially the Congress, Democrats are in a tight spot to get any of these controversial issues through. Our most popular election is a presidential election. We get about a 50 percent. That's one out of two actually bother to vote. There are countries where people put their lives on the line to get the franchise and to be allowed to participate. In this country, we take it for granted. We say, ah, you know what, let somebody else do it. Well, when you let somebody else do it, you got to live with the results. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was at the Medical Center in Plattsburgh this week promoting legislation to lower insulin costs. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was there and brings us this report. The New York Democrat traveled to Plattsburgh to discuss the high costs of insulin. Schumer said there are 1.7 million people in the state diagnosed with diabetes, 45,000 in the North Country. What good is having these lifesavers if people can't afford it? These days, a single month's worth of insulin can cost $600 a month. We have a major push, which we hope to put on the floor of the Senate in July, that will reduce the outrageous cost of insulin from as high as $600 down to $35 a month. And the good news is we have a bipartisan plan led by two New England senators, and they put together legislation, and now we're fighting to get 60 votes. You need 60 votes to get anything done. But I'm very hopeful that we can get this done. And as majority leader, I am here to announce that I'm going to call a vote in this Congress to cap the price to get this price down. Morgan Thomas is a 22-year-old nurse who not only works with diabetes patients, she has the disease herself. When I was eight months old, I was rushed to the ICU with a blood sugar of 1,350, which in most cases would have killed a 300-pound man, let alone an eight-month-old baby. A fasting blood sugar level of 99 or lower, lower is normal for an adult. It was also the day I was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic and my life was changed forever. Diabetes is a challenge I face every day. I have to regulate my blood sugar 24-7. Every three days, I insert a needle to create a new site for insulin delivery. And once a week, I jab myself with another needle to insert a sensor that helps me monitor my blood sugar in real time. I have to have tight regulation on my blood sugar or else I could experience serious damage to my body and face complications in the long run. I have been very fortunate throughout my life to have a good insurance, but that is not true for all people with diabetes. I not only see how diabetes affects me and my younger brother, but also the patients I care for. 
I see patients come in with diabetic ketoacidosis due to rationing insulin and not having enough to keep their blood sugar in a safe range. It is crucial that we find a way to help make a medicine that keeps them alive affordable. Schumer's office cited estimates from the Healthcare Cost Institute showing the average 40-day supply cost for insulin nearly doubled in New York between 2012 and 2016 and now costs about $690. Schumer says there is no good reason for the price increases. The price never used to be that high. It keeps going up and up and up, and it's not because of patents. Guess when the patent was issued for insulin? 1921. Guess who did it? A Canadian doctor named Fleming. And Dr. Fleming said, I'm going to sell the patent to the world for $1. So there is no excuse for insulin being so expensive. It's gone up every year since 2012, an average of 15 to 17% a year. So now one in four Americans who need it have to ration it. The drug companies will still make money at the old price. A link to the draft insulin or improving needed safeguards for users of life-saving insulin now act is at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. As another summer meet at Saratoga Racecourse approaches, thoroughbred racing advocates say the troubled sport is beginning a new era of oversight and accountability. The Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, established by Congress in 2020, is overseeing efforts to implement standard and nationalized rules with respect to safety and doping. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus sat down for a conversation this week with the authority's new CEO, Lisa Lazarus. To begin with, before we talk about some of the issues facing racing, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you come to this position? Sure. Um, so uh, I have a sort of relatively lengthy career in sports regulation, um, and particularly around um, anti doping programs and disciplinary sports programs. I started, I'm a lawyer by training. I uh, started my career at a private law firm at Aiken Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, um, essentially in their labor and employment division. After that, I spent 10 years at the National Football League, um, primarily representing the 32 member clubs in collective bargaining issues, but also representing the teams in various disputes and arbitrations with the players, including um, the anti-doping programs and performance enhancing um, programs. Um, after that, I was the general counsel of the International Equestrian Federation and also their chief business development and strategy that was actually overseas in Switzerland that was governing sport horses internationally. And then um, the last four years prior to assuming, assuming the job as CEO of Haiza, I was I created um, an equine law practice at a sports boutique law firm called Morgan Sports Law, where I was representing, you know, owners, trainers, riders, primarily of sport horses. And then I took this role what, in February of 2022. What appealed to you about this particular position? So a, a couple of things. One is I definitely have developed over my time working in equine law, 
um, a passion for for the horse and for horse welfare related issues. Um, I think you know sports that involve a horse are extraordinary and are um, bring so many sort of benefits um, to the public, but also to the industries that they create. But obviously, that's also a real responsibility. And I'm sort of passionate about protecting these sports while at the same time making sure that the animals are protected. Um, I also looked at it as a, an opportunity to, to have a real impact on an industry that I thought um, was a fantastic industry in sport, which is obviously horse racing, but also really could use some support and some assistance in terms of you know, making some regulatory changes that would help to secure its future going forward. Um, you know, what was really interesting to me in particular is that horse racing is really the only sport that I know of that doesn't have a national or didn't until now have a national governing body. And I thought the opportunity to kind of create that given the experiences that I've had over the course of my career would be really unique and potentially very fulfilling. For our listeners, if you could explain what is the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority's uh, mandate and, and what is your role in implementing it? Sure. So the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act was passed by Congress, as you mentioned, in, 20, in December 2020. And it, that act creates the authority that I'm the CEO of with a mission to make racing safer and to protect the integrity of horse racing. And really, um, the act gives us two programs or essentially tools in order to fulfill that mission. One is the racetrack safety program, which really um, is all about enhancing both equine and also jockey or rider safety um, through various provisions and, and requirements that, that pertain to racetrack accreditation, as well as um, various uniform safety rules that are in place to, to essentially you know, protect our horses from, from fatalities and from injuries and also uh, protect the riders. And the second program is the anti-doping and medication control program, which is there to essentially protect the integrity of the sport. Um, and the, uh, the racetrack safety program is going into effect July 1, and the anti-doping medication control program is going into effect January 2023. How are you being received by the industry so far? I think it's fair to say racing has been a fairly insular uh, world over the years. What I'll say to that is, uh, you know, most stakeholder groups have been supportive of our mission and support of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and we've had a tremendous amount of, you know, positive feedback from a lot of the, you know, the, the big, the bigger players in, in horse racing. You know, we've also had some trepidation and some anxiety from groups that, you know, are anxious about what the future holds for racing and, and aren't sure that, um, you know, that Haiza is going to actually sort of make a difference, a positive difference in their, in their lives or in their, in the industry. Um, and obviously, you know, we're going to have to show that we do bring positive, positive um, impact and that we are really there to, to inspire the sport and to, and to help the sport, as I said, kind of be around for generations to come. Um, but in that sense, I have to say, it's obviously been a little bit mixed because you know, we haven't, we haven't gotten going yet and change is always, I think, difficult for people. You have mentioned two areas uh, where you'll be concentrating. That's in racing safety and in doping. Is one of the two issues a bigger focus for you right now? 
Well, neither one are, are more important than the other. I think they are equally important and they go and they work in tandem. That being said, because the racetrack safety program is operational July 1 um, and the anti-doping not until January 1, we're a bit more focused on the racetrack safety program and making sure that it launches properly and that we have everything in place to, to make sure it goes smoothly and to make sure we can properly enforce it. Um, at the same time, the anti-doping medication control regulations are currently up for public comment. And I'm um, you know, collecting those comments and reviewing the rules from a substantive standpoint. So they're kind of they're they're equally important, but from a timing standpoint, they're sequenced differently. What sort of changes are being discussed or on the table in terms of racetrack safety? What is meant by that specifically? So, you know, we have a number of different um, regulations that pertain to the racetracks, things like surface testing to make sure that the surfaces are at their optimal safety net safety for, for horses and, and, and for the riders who are on those horses. Um, we're looking at having a uniform, we're going to have a uniform crop rule so that all, um, all states and all racetracks have the same rule involving, involving the crop. We have enhanced um, veterinary reporting so that we have a closer connection between you know, what the veterinarians are seeing when they examine horses and their actual performances or their ability to race. We have things like, you know, safety committees and safety inspectors um, that are required. Now, some of the, some of the racetracks are already doing this, but these regulations make those requirements national. So that's kind of a sampling. Lisa, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to add for people listening? I think the, maybe the only thing that I would add is that, you know, Haiza, we have, you know, incredible lofty goals and we are going to make racing better. You know, I'm absolutely sure of that, but it's an incredibly unusual situation. We're basically creating a governing body from a, from a blank piece of paper. And so I'm certain that there are going to be things that we don't get right from the outset because of this white blank piece of paper. So there are things that will evolve over time, but I believe we have the core ingredients in place. Lisa Lazarus is CEO of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us and good luck in the new position. Thank you so much. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2226. Or just listen at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Happy 4th.